Eyewitness News. Be there as it happens. City News. It's 1730 GMT. This is Eyewitness News on 97.3 CTFM. I am Umaru Sanda Amadou. Tonight, I'm here with... Hawa Idrisu. Coming up over the next 90 minutes, government formally responds to 11 doctors who took issue with a mass and compulsory vaccination, vaccination I beg your pardon, against COVID-19. We have the response from government and a counter-statement here on Eyewitness News. Also coming up, the Coalition of Concerned University Students say they will be on the... Actually, this will be a group of university students who are saying that they will be on the streets to demonstrate over the continuous strike by the lecturers. And later on Eyewitness News. The resolution at our General Assembly was to embark on a strike tomorrow. That's first for the... If we, ha we don't have commitment for the payment of this... Allowance. The doctors of the Konfonochi Teaching Hospital who have given management up to the end of today to deal with their concerns or see them desert the wards tomorrow. Stay with 97.3 CTFM for more on this and many other stories on Eyewitness News. And in business... Monetary Policy Committee of the Bank of Ghana maintains policy rates at 14.5% due to inflation risk. That's in some 15 minutes with Netili Neti of the City Business Desk. Eyewitness News is live across the country on a number of affiliate stations. Across the globe, we're on citynewsroom.com. It's an interactive show. Let us know what you think. WhatsApp 0549-986-996. That's WhatsApp and Telegram. Also on Twitter. The hashtag is City Newsroom Tweet at Umaru Sanda or at City973. And the world will hear what you think. No matter where you are in the country, you can listen to Eyewitness News. If you're in the Western region, tune to Beach 105.5 in Takradi. In the Bono region, you can tune to Storm FM 101.9 in Sunyani. In the Ashanti region, Eyewitness is on Focus 94.3 FM on the campus of the Kwame Nkrumah University of Science and Technology, KNUST. In the Volta region, we are on Revival, 99.3 FM in Tajavu. Now, in the northern region, this will be Radio Bimbila you are listening to on 91.9 FM. In the Upper East region, we are on Tung Tanga Radio, I beg your pardon, in Bolaga Tanga on 93.7. And in the Upper West region, this is Tungsung, 97.3 in Wa. Let's settle for details of our stories now. And the first one has to do with an official response by the government of Ghana, uh, the health aspect of things in relation to some 11 doctors who had raised issue with the mass vaccination and compulsory vaccination. Now, these doctors, 11 of them, had written extensively explaining, copiously rather, explaining why uh, they did not support the decision to have a mass vaccination happening in Ghana over COVID-19. The government has repeatedly maintained that it was the best bet if the country was to deal with the issue of COVID-19. Tonight, the government of Ghana has responded. We'll be hearing 
from from the government shortly. But before then, uh, let me remind you some of the key things uh, that the doctors have been uh, saying. A um, number of news portals have already reported this uh, story, uh, which has um, been in the news for a while now. Um, let me bring you the initial statement made by the doctors, and it is titled Acknowledgement and Appreciation of the Response from the Office of the President to a Petition. Uh, that actually came after an earlier petition, which is titled Petition to Rescind Vaccine Mandate in Public and Private Institutions Across the Nation. Now, it says in part that we as physicians pledged to concentrate our lives to the service of humanity, practicing our profession with conscience and dignity with the health of our patients, our first consideration. Indeed, we are to uphold the principle of primum non nocere, first do no harm. As Ghanaians also, we pledge ourselves to the service of Ghana to boldly defend the cause of freedom and of rights, to cherish fearless honesty, resisting oppressive rule, we cannot in good conscience stand by and watch the lives of innocent Ghanaians be gambled away in their basic freedoms and rights of health abused. Now that's the second paragraph in the statement. It continues to say, before the rollout of any vaccine program, there are three major concerns that must be addressed, namely the necessity, the efficacy and the safety of the vaccine. Looking at the available data and research concerning the pandemic and these novel vaccines, it is clear, at least to us, that these vaccines are not necessary or are not necessary, neither are they effective nor safe. Under necessity, the doctors argue that as of the 5th of January 2022, there had been 148,000 total cases of COVID-19, with 13,576 active cases, 1,313 deaths associated with COVID-19, 45 severe and 8 critical cases. These numbers amount to an infection fatality rate of 0.89%, with 0.39% of active cases being severe or critical cases. At first glance, these numbers do not seem to adequately portray this pandemic, with quite a number of Ghanaians who trust in the media seeing this disease to be a death sentence. It is worth noting that the majority of deaths are in individuals above 65 years with multiple serious comorbidities in a country with a life expectancy of 64 years. Also, case fatality rate is probably much lower if you consider the fact that most people are not testing both symptomatic and asymptomatic, which underestimates the denominator and probably exaggerates the case fatality rate. Seriously ill people and those who eventually die will most likely seek medical care in a hospital and be tested. So the likelihood of people dying from COVID-19 outside hospital is probably low. Moreover, significant effort is not being made to differentiate those who die with COVID-19, i.e. those who die from other causes but tested positive COVID-19 shortly before their death, from those who die from COVID-19, that's those uh, for whom COVID-19 is the primary cause of death. Making that distinction would probably reduce the number of COVID-19 deaths, reducing the infection fatality rate even further. A, seropre a seroprevalence study from a town in Japan shows more people in the community have antibodies to COVID-19, 396 to 858-fold more than confirmed cases with PCR testing. Another 
paragraph under necessity. He says, furthermore, the reliability of PCR tests for diagnosis COVID, diagnosing COVID-19 has always been in question since the beginning of the pandemic. The technique of PCR was never meant for diagnosis, but to provide enough genetic material for culture. Now, that argument on the necessity uh, continues by the doctors on the third page. And uh, let's go to the aspect they discuss efficacy. They say, during the early days of the pandemic, the general sentiment was to hold on for a vaccine to come and save the day. We were told that these vaccines were our only way out of this pandemic, providing immunity against infection, preventing severe critical diseases, hospitalizations, and death. Over time, however, all these have been shown to be false assertions. These vaccines do not prevent infections or spread. Recent studies show that the vaccinated are becoming more relevant in the spread of COVID-19. Many studies show outbreaks within fully vaccinated populations. Now, on the issue of safety, the doctors argued, saying many safety issues have been raised all over the world with these new vaccines, most of which were developed under a year, under a year with no reliable Ghanaian database of adverse, of adverse effects or events to the COVID-19 vaccines, we had no option than to refer to foreign databases, namely the United States and uh, WHO's databases. Individually, as physicians, we have also personally seen many patients who develop known side effects of these vaccines within days to weeks of going for these jabs. Some of these include facial paralysis from Bell's palsy, Infractive, infractive strokes, thrombotic phenomena, that's blood clots, myocarditis, visual disturbances, among others. Now, these are all comments, and they have given a recommendation. They said, Ghana and Africa at large should be expected to lead the whole world in the fight against COVID-19. Why do we say this? All the relevant metrics show that Ghana and Africa at large have done better than most of the world with respect to the pandemic, even before the advent of these vaccines. It is possible the rest of the world are rather to learn from us. So essentially, these 11 doctors uh, issued this statement and um, said that they did not think that the compulsory and mass vaccination should be ongoing necessarily. They've even given a bibliography of um, relevant citations that they have made. Now, several uh, weeks on, uh, the government has responded through the health advisor to the president. Uh, it's on a letterhead, the office of the president's letterhead, and it's addressed to concerned Ghanaian doctors. Attention, Dr. Timothy Oblijaama, BSc, MBCHB. It's titled RE, Petition to Recent Vaccination Mandates in Public and Private Institutions Across the Nation. In response to your petition dated 10th January 2022, uh, that is re-petition to recent vaccine mandates in the public and private institutions and nation, unquote, I have been directed by His Excellency the President to reply on his behalf to your petition. The priority of the President in the fight against COVID-19 has been a collaborative endeavor. He remains open to listening and engaging various stakeholders in the efforts to combat the pandemic. He continues to say that to this resolve, His Excellency the President's action and strategies have been and continue to be guided on evidence-based science driven by data. Thus, it is earnest to continue to such process that I respond to the following. One, in response to your request to halt all forms of mandates across the country requiring proof of vaccination with COVID-19 vaccines be rescinded with immediate effect and a pause in the vaccine rollout, Though the position of government with regards to COVID-19 vaccination, 
as backed by both local and international source data, remains that the COVID-19 vaccines are effective in reducing severe or critical sickness, leading to ICU bed exhaustion, mass hospitalization, and death. There is no current official mandate requiring mandatory vaccine rollouts within the country. So that's the first point, that there's no mandatory vaccine rollout. It's not compulsory. That's what the, the official response from the president is on behalf of a response being sent to him uh, for to the doctors from the president through his advice on health. Number two, he says that on your issue of necessity, the recent increases in deployment of vaccines, especially in the last two months, show clearly the benefits of vaccination regarding the number of positive cases relative to severe and critical cases that need hospitalization and the number of deaths. There is a clear evidence of the public health impact of vaccination in terms of infections, hospitalizations, death, prevented and improved health outcomes that cannot simply be brushed away. The recent outpatient data from 4th July 2021 to 14th January 2022 indicates that out of 900 attendees, 273, that's 30.3%, were fully vaccinated, 98 percent that's 10.8 percent were partially vaccinated and 529 which is 58 percent were unvaccinated so it is bringing data to counter the data that was presented uh, by the doctors it continues to say similar data from the same period showing the disease severity vaccination status and mortality of all covid19 admissions at the uh, gidc that's the ghana infectious disease center also indicates that out of 306 inpatient admissions 30.30 that's 9.8% were fully vaccinated 15 partially vaccinated and 261 were unvaccinated the cited data also shows that out of 238 severe or critical cases admitted during the period 24 were made up of fully and partially vaccinated patients and 214 unvaccinated patients now, the government responds thus on the issue of efficacy and safety. It says, Ghana continues to boast of a robust and advanced monitoring process in ensuring safety in our medicines, vaccines, and other health products. Kindly note that the Ghana Food and Drugs Authority FDA safety monitoring staff serves on both the Global Advisory Committee on Vaccine Safety and Council for International Organization of Medical Sciences, vaccine safety committee the world health organization as part of its regulatory system strengthening review the safety monitoring that's a pharmacy pharmacovigilance function of the fda in 2020 and adjudged it at an advanced level of performance which is the highest maturity level any regulatory function can attain so they continue to give the 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 accolades or accolades that will go with the fda and so on uh, let's look at the last sentence in the, that particular paragraph. And it says, in part, um, actually, let me take it from here. Uh, it says that additionally, an independent committee made up of 11 experts and a co opted member comprising of epidemiologists, endocrinologists, and um, gastroenterologists, immunization specialists, pathologists, clinical pharmacists, family medicines physicians, um, cardiologists, pulmonologists pharmacovigilance vaccine safety expert and the program manager of expanded program on immunization from the ghana health service as a co-opted member the joint independent vaccine review committee serves as an advisory body to the fda on matters relating to the post approval safety 
monitoring of COVID-19 vaccines. The strategy of the government in combating the COVID-19 pandemic remains hand washing and hand hygiene, wearing of masks, social distancing and vaccination. The combination of these preventive measures, in addition to caring for the citizens that have contracted COVID-19 infections, remain at the forefront of how Ghana Health Systems continues to fight the pandemic. The recent, um, the recent increases in deployment of vaccines, especially in the last two months, show clearly the benefits of vaccination regarding the number of positive cases relative to severe and critical cases that need hospitalization and number of deaths. There is clear evidence of the public health impact of vaccination in terms of infections, hospitalizations, deaths prevented, and improved health outcomes which cannot simply be brushed away. It is important as a country to take advantage of vaccination to reduce transmission, severe critical illness, hospitalization, death, the strain on our healthcare system, adverse effects on individuals and families and the society. In general, in light of this, His Excellency President is committed to continue to protect the lives and livelihoods of all Ghanaians and encourage all Ghanaians to vaccinate and observe all COVID-19 protocols. Thank you, signed Dr. Anthony Nsiansari, Presidential Advisor, on health and this has been copied to the relevant body so these are the two uh, statements the first one brought by the doctors who were opposed to the mass vaccination which they describe as compulsory the government has come in with a response and says wait a minute it was not compulsory in the first place but we still believe that vaccination is a way to go let me know what you make of these two positions uh as espoused by the two sides send me your message 0549-986-996 or tweet using the hashtag city newsroom there as it happens let your voice be heard on eyewitness news on facebook at facebook.com forward slash city 97.3 twitter at twitter.com forward slash city 973 and instagram at instagram.com forward slash city 973 with the hashtag eyewitness news Welcome back to Eyewitness News on 97.3 CTFM. We are coming to you from our studios in Adabraka in Accra. Uh, the show is also live around the country on a number of affiliate stations. Um, you can join us by WhatsApp 0549-986-996. Before we went on the break, I was bringing you a chronology of events. Um, on 10th January 2022, a group called Concerned Ghanaian Doctors, uh, which comprises uh, 11 practicing doctors in Ghana, I wrote a petition to the president asking for the government to halt the mandatory uh, public mass vaccination for COVID-19 or against COVID-19. On 18th January 2022, the president's special advice on health responded in a five-page uh, statement in which it disagreed with the doctors and uh, made several um, points to state the government's position of having uh, being on or standing on the side of vaccination. Now, on 25th January, we have another response, which is from the doctors, which is a response to the uh, earlier response on, of 18th January from the health advisor. Uh, let me read portions of that for you. And it's again signed by the same individual or gentleman who signed on behalf of the doctors in the first petition and uh, on behalf of the 11 uh, doctors. That is Dr. Timothy Obleja Ama. And a part of that, uh, it is responding. It says, in your response, you reiterated the president's willingness to remain open to listening and engaging various stakeholders 
in their efforts to combat the pandemic and his commitment to protect lives and livelihoods of all Ghanaians. I deeply appreciate the president's dedication to preservation of the lives and livelihoods of his citizens and his listening ear to ask doctors who have given our lives to work for the Ghanaian people. The current COVID-19 pandemic and the attendant vaccination program is of significant interest to Ghana as a member of the global community and to individual Ghanaians, not only as a matter of public health, but of personal health as well. On point one, the, the, the doctors say, it is stated in your response that there is no current official mandate requiring mandatory vaccine rollouts within the country. However, this seems to be in contradiction to statement made by the Director General of the Ghana Health Service. He stated in news conference in November 2021 that government will hold a vaccination drive in December after which the vaccine will be mandatory for employees in all arms of government, health workers, security personnel, staff and students of secondary and tertiary education and commercial drivers. This sentiment was captured in the Daily Graphic in a news article titled December Declared COVID-19 Vaccination Month. This was further buttressed at the Ministry of Information press briefing, which was held on 19 January 2022, where representatives of the Ghana Health Service, including the Director General himself, provided policy updates on vaccine strategies, repeating government commitment to make the COVID-19 vaccine mandatory, uh, setting particular groups of people, and extending the COVID-19 vaccination program to include pregnant women. Number two, he says, furthermore, you provided statistics sourced from Ghana Infectious Disease Center, Accra, to support the position that there is clear evidence of the public health impact of vaccination in terms of infections, hospitalization, deaths, prevented and improved health outcomes. It says, not going into too much detail, it seems, at least to me, that the numbers provided from GIDC as per your letter actually shows the opposite if you consider the context in which the data was obtained. By the first week in December 2021, uh, through your letter provided, the range of 4th July 2021 to 14th January 2022, approximately 2.6% of Ghana's population were fully vaccinated and 57 were partially vaccinated, leaving the vast majority of Ghanaians unvaccinated. Since majority of the population were unvaccinated, it follows logically that majority of cases, hospitalizations and deaths would be unvaccinated. This does not show any advantage from the vaccine but is simply a reflection of population metrics. If the data sold from GIDC is accurate in the context of the proportion of Ghana, Ghanaian vaccinated during the time period, it actually calls into question the potency of the vaccine. Number three, in our original petition to the president, we made mention of certain adverse events experienced in associating with these novel vaccines, citing information from the American VAERS and WHO's VGAXIS, no, VG rather. We did not question the credentials of the FDA safety monitoring staff, nor did we call into disrepute a claim of the FDA. Number four, it says, on the issue of necessity, there seemed to be no comment on, an inf on the infection fatality ra rate we highlighted. Granted, infection fatality rate has no direct bearing on an individual's risk of death from the infection, but it's a crude measure that provides a general idea of how fatal a disease is. Number five, on the issue of efficacy, it is now readily accepted that these vaccines do not prevent infection or spread. If that is the case, the only one who benefits from the vaccine, if indeed it is as effective as presented, is the recipient of the vaccine. In, of the vaccine. in other words, this becomes an issue of personal protection. What then is the rationale for mandating these vaccines for health workers since vaccinating them does not benefit their patients? Number six, 
Finally, on the issue of safety, the safety of these novel COVID-19 vaccines is yet to be established. Though the Ghana FDA safety monitoring system may be internationally acclaimed, there are increasing number of people experiencing serious life-altering and potential fatal life-threatening events who are simply not captured by the system. This seems to be a global challenge. Potential adverse effects like myocarditis, previously tagged as conspir conspiracy theory, is now a well-known adverse effect associated with most of these vaccines. His Excellency, the President of the Republic of Ghana, has indeed verbally expressed his desire to protect the lives and livelihoods of all Ghanaians. In his commitment to achieve this, I sincerely hope that he pays attention to all pertinent and relevant information as it pertains to the COVID-19 pandemic and these novel COVID-19 vaccines. It is also my utmost desire that the President of this Republic of Ghana will consider the potential effects, both short and long term, of the nation's response to the pandemic, including the rollout and potential consideration of mandates of these novel COVID-19 vaccines. Thank you, yours fitly signed, uh, Dr. Timothy Obliger Ama. And uh, he has quoted several, uh, or he cited several uh, publications to support his response. So those are the three documents that we have now on this issue of COVID-19, the mandatory vaccination and the position from government. These 11 doctors said no, the government said yes, and the conversation continues. We're trying to uh, reach either of the two parties uh, for a comment, a verbal one, that is, we've not been successful. When we do, we'll share that with you, but that is the crux of the um, debate or the argument between the two sides. This is Eyewitness News. Let's hear some of the reactions that have been coming through. Howard. Prince Henry in Koforidia writes, COVID-19 vaccination shouldn't be mandatory and under no circumstance should the Nana Baumia-led NPP government force it on us. What we need as a country is proactive and effective dissemination of information on COVID-19. Send your message to 0549-986-996. That's a WhatsApp number. Now, if you're on Twitter... Uh, use the hashtag City Newsroom and tweet directly at Umaru Sanda. And uh, Nanasewa Bruni has done that. And he says, I support them. Aren't doctors precious to the country? If the politicians don't want to sacrifice, why should they? Everything under Akufado is a disaster. Uh, e -levy. DPT says, is the government saying that vaccination is not mandatory? But why does the inscription, no vaccination card, no entry? Posted at the entrance of offices and schools like you has in the admission message re requires students to vaccinate before reporting. Jacob Senanu Kwame De says, I agree with the doctors, even though the vaccination may help prevent the individual from getting the virus. It is also important to know that the patient has a right to refuse treatment. So in effect, it should not be made compulsory. Uh, Idisa Tahiru Omega says, I'm tempted to believe the stance of the doctors regarding the vaccine. Vaccine. I suffered facial paralysis after taking the vaccine and still recovering from same. Until today, I have been wondering what could have caused me that condition. Wow, you see. Uh, Abdul Somet Pacello says, um, Nana Kufado and Dr. Baumia and the MPP should spare us the lies and tricks playing against we, the citizens of Ghana. What all is holding them from paying the university teachers? Or that one too, unless e levy. Okay, that's in relation to the UTAC strike, uh, which is forcing the students on the streets very soon. Mahama Bakojo from SUM says, Why are we pampering ourselves like that? I thought once you've paid, then nothing again. All these types of allowances should be added to salaries. AU Farouk in Tamale says, In fact, making the vaccine compulsory uh, for Ghanaians looks like Ghanaians are under colonial rule. 
um, Lukman Bashiru says everything is now forced on us, whether bad or good. This is clearly not a democracy. Uh, you see, uh, more tweets are coming through. Um, Kojo Mensah says instead of the government um, making sure Ghanaians are well educated on the prevention and how COVID 19 is spread, the government prefers to force it on us. When developed countries are not forcing it on their citizens, the government should focus on UTAG strike. Daniel Atia from Dansuman says, Indeed, the efficacy of the COVID-19 vaccine imported to Ghana is nothing but a packaged water in a well-designed box to deceive gullible Ghanaians. I'm not sure that is a, a comment that is entirely um, true. Wolanyu Nakotia says, Oh, um, care thou not that we perish, so what can we do to drive away COVID-19 and its associated um, variances like Omicron? They shouldn't cause havoc to our health, and those doctors can go on and refuse the injection. Prince Henry in Kofrida says, "Shouldn't the mandatory? Shouldn't it be? It shouldn't be mandatory, and under no circumstance should the Nana-Baumia-led MPP government force it on us. What we need as a country is proactive and effective dissemination of information on COVID-19 prevention. The future is pregnant." And finally, Nukunu Foga says, "I was on Ligon campus from 7:30 a.m. to 1:30 p.m. today to visit my ward, and I saw the frustration." Of students, especially the newly admitted students and final year students, the government is setting up our campuses for disaster. Send your views as well. Use the hashtag City Newsroom. Tweet at Umaru Sanda or at City973. Let's go to issues of uh, governance now, shall we? Hawa. Now, a Deputy Attorney General and Minister for Justice, Alfred Tia Yeboa, has reiterated government enduring effort in the fight against corruption. Listing a litany of actions taken, including laws passed, Mr. Tia Yeboa says the fight against corruption continues to require the collective effort of the citizenry. The latest Corruption Perception Index by Antigraft Body Transparency International shows that Ghana has not made any gains in the fight against corruption. But speaking at a Ghana Integrity Initiative roundtable discussion on redesigning new strategies for the country's approach to the fight against the Kanka, the Deputy AG says government remains committed to making practices of corruption unattractive. The present government has continued the corruption fight and I intend citing some examples to know what the government has been doing so far. Firstly, this administration is committed to raiding our nation of corruption as evidenced by the passage of the RTA, Right Information Act, which gives substance to Article 21, Clause 1F as a fundamental right guaranteed by the 92 Constitution. With the support of the President, the Ministry of Information is training information officers in the various ministries, departments, and agencies of government to support the implementation of the law. The Witness Protection Act 2018, Act 975, which was passed, has set up a witness protection agency. This is to clothe witnesses in the prosecution of cases, most especially corruption cases, in mind. With the passage of the Criminal Offenses Amendment Act 2020, Act 1034, which amends Section 239 of the Criminal Offenses Act, of the Criminal Offense Act, this amendment changes the status of corruption from a misdemeanor to a felony. This means that anyone who engages corruption, if he's tried, convicted, and sentenced, he receives a minimum of 12 years and a maximum of 25 years per the new law. The government intensifying the reforms has passed other legislations, such as the Revenue Administration Amendment Act. 
You had a Deputy Attorney General and Minister for Justice, Alfred Tua Yeboah. Now, ahead of the parliamentary debates on the electronic transfer levy on Tuesday, the minority in parliament has reiterated that it will not support the levy in any form until government aborts the plan completely. Government, as part of its engagement with the minority in parliament last week, resolved to reduce the levy from the initial 1.75% to 1.5%. However, speaking to the media on the sidelines of an event to hand over 15,000 uniforms to students within their Samoasi constituency, the minority chief whip Muntaka Mubarak says the NDC caucus in parliament will not even accept a 0.1% electronic transfer levy. For those of us in the opposition, we are very clear on our mind. For charging on transaction, there's no way we can support. If you want to talk about the fees, we can look at it. If you want to talk about other things that you can do to close the gap of the 7 billion, we can look at it together as a, as a house. I mean, I want to encourage our colleagues in government. I've said this to a number of them, that what is your problem? Is your problem the closing of the gap of 7 billion? Or your problem is that you must just tax Momo? Let's be clear. If it is about what can we do to close the gap of 7 billion, there are a number of things. I mean, one, the waivers, tax waivers. And I, you brought the bill, but you are not interested in pursuing it to get the cookie pass because with the greatest respect, you want to give tax waivers to your friends and cronies. Mohamed Muntaka Mubarak is the Minority Chief Whip and Member of Parliament for Asawasi in the Ashanti region. Government says the use of foreign names to identify some streets in Ghana was due to disagreement among local opinion leaders over the choice of names. Some Ghanaians have raised concerns over the culturally irrelevant names chosen for some streets in Ghana. Some of the names include Stockholm, Champagne, Netflix and Warwick Street. Speaking on the City Breakfast Show earlier, the Director of Special Project and Investor Relations at the Office of the Vice President, Dr. Alolo Mutaka, explained that the foreign names are generic names awaiting conclusive local names after disputes are settled. To start this project, all the assemblies were brought together and were told to submit their, the street names that they have in their respective assemblies. They all submitted. In fact, some didn't have. Some in the assembly, they would have named only 10% of their street, some 20%. The rest are not named. And we say, okay, this is how... There were a lot of consultations with the assemblies, with other stakeholders involved. Then we came up with a strategy was developed that, like the streets that... Current, that are currently named by the assemblies on the ground. We will maintain that. Those that don't have names, we are going to give them a generic name, which is done by Lucifer. This was done and led by Lucifer, Land Youth and Social Planet. So when you don't have street names, name, there are places we go, and in fact, we cannot even have a street name because different people are fighting for a particular street name. These people say they want this, other people say they want this, or chiefs, or Different, different scenarios on the ground. That would just let, let this take up. So the decision was made that where well, we don't have street names, let us give them generic street names with the numbering and the address. Currently, what we have done, if you look at it, whatever street name or whatever address is put on your house, if you put that address in Google or whatever, it will bring you to the house, regardless of the street name or regardless of anything. If that is your unique address, which will be in the database, which you can be easily linked and identified with everywhere you go. Dr. Alolo Mutaka also 
appealed rather to the public to be vigilant as some unscrupulous persons have been stealing the nameplates for scraps. Honestly, people, some people have reported and they have been corrected and, and, and all that. But also what I just want to appeal to you and your cherished listeners is for everybody to support this project. Recently, there have also been, uh, uh, how do they call these guys, who are going around stealing the plates. It just makes the work very difficult. Someone had the audacity to go to a police station to try to steal plates where the plates were being kept, but he was caught by the police. And other people are removing them in houses. Some residents are being very vigilant and chasing them away. But we will appeal to everybody to be quite vigilant, uh, vigilant and protect the place and, and, and chase these people away when they try to sabotage the work that we are doing for the benefit of the whole country. And I will appeal to you as well to use your media. Mm. That was the Director of Special Project and Investor Relations at the Office of the Vice President, Dr. Alolo Muntaka. Eyewitness News. Be there as it happens. Let your voice be heard on Eyewitness News on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash city97.3. Twitter at twitter.com forward slash city973. And Instagram at instagram.com forward slash city973. With the hashtag Eyewitness News. You're welcome back. A portion of the Swami roundabout to the airport roundabout stretch in the Ashanti regional capital, Kumasi, has developed a huge gully which residents fear could lead to a disaster. Although there have been persistent complaints by road users on the state of the road, residents say authorities have not paid heed to their cry. Regular users of the road say although there have been several visits by authorities to inspect the bridge, the state of the road is worsening by the day. Road users are calling for an urgent intervention to avert a possible disaster. Yeah, I use this road from few meters to the airport runabout. There is a bridge over here for let's say from 2014. Uh, they started from 2014 going back right now when you look at the place it nearly caused some accident even this morning i want to have some accident over here so we are begging to the we are to the president to do something about it it's, we have stayed for long so we are just uh, appealed to the uh, the president to do something about the bridge we are just appealed to him my fears is that if the person is a new driver coming from somewhere maybe from burkina or somewhere he can even get accident in front of this bridge so that's my point and right now, when the rain started, less than one hour, no vehicle can pass through airport runabout. So we are putting the government to do something about it. The erosion is spreading through the underneath of the bridge. I remember very well that former President Mahama himself was here some time ago to inspect the state of the road when there was flooding here and nothing was done. A former road minister during the Mahama administration and even the current minister of roads and several other authorities have also been here to inspect the state of the bridge. They all come to inspect and when they leave, the issue will not be solved. There is ongoing work to upgrade the airport to an international standard. And should it flood and a dignitary is using the road to the airport, can't it lead to a possible disaster? The state of the road is worsening and we are appealing to the authorities to fix the problem. 
It had some users of the Swami roundabout in the Shanti region lamenting about the poor state of the road. Meanwhile, officials of the Urban Road Department say they are aware of the situation. Ashanti Regional Director of the Urban Road Department, Engineer Francis Gambra, tells the news although warning signs were erected at the place, they are often taken off by some passers-by. It is instructive to do that we have put in place two or three major safety interventions, which unfortunately has been taken over uh, or taken off by advisor at first. If I would block the road entirely, after I think about two days, uh, the people within the area marshaled forces to go and remove the blockade. It was done with uh, some concrete U drains. Then we also put some borders and cordon it off to limit the road to a one-way section. I think uh, that thing too has been taken over, but I think we will continue to put the necessary signs in place to award or alert road users within that same space, yeah. For now, is there any concrete assurance in terms of timelines to finish this? To finish? As I said, it works to commence within the first quarter, but I think this work can take up to one year to complete. You heard the Shanti Regional Director of the Urban Road Department, Engineer Francis Gambra. This is Eyewitness News on 97.3 CTFM. We are coming to you from our studios in Adabraka in Accra. The show is interactive. Uh, do send us your views. Uh, let's know what you make of the big stories we are bringing you tonight. Do let us know what you think of the big stories that we are bringing you. 0549-986-996. Let's go and discuss issues having to do with the University Teachers Association of Ghana now. That association has been on strike for some weeks now. Uh, it has several issues that it has raised with government. The issues have not been solved. It went on strike. The NLC... Uh, ruled that the strike was illegal. The UTAC disregarded that um, and is still not back in the classroom. The NLC has gone to court to enforce its ruling. The UTAC cannot be bothered. We want to speak to some of the officials to find out if the position has since shifted after NLC went to court. Professor Ransford Jampo is a um, secretary of the University Teachers Association of Ghana, the chapter at the University of Ghana here in Accra. Prof, you're welcome to Eyewitness News. Uh, we spoke to you um, the day after the NLC declared your strike illegal. Uh, you did not really bother. You, st you said you were still going to go on the strike after consulting your members. Now the NLC has actually gone to court wanting to enforce the ruling. Does this bother you and would it make you change, would it make this, would it make you change your position? And no, it doesn't bother anybody. We knew that was what we were going to do, and we were prepared. In fact, we have even delayed, taking a long time um, going to court. We knew they were going to go to court. And so the court is staffed by competent um, judges who will be able to look at the merits of the case. It should be put out there that they earlier went to the court, their ex party, to restrain us from um, continuing with our strike. The court did not grant um, that uh, motion as it sought to pass. And so we are going there on Thursday 
um, in person um, to explain why we think that our strike should continue. And um, that is what we are bent on doing. Um, I have heard from some quarters that um, the executive secretary is saying we have no case and that our case should be thrown away. We scored him one goal already. Um, he went to file um, the motion by ex party so that on our blind spot they would just the court will rule against us or something, but that didn't happen. Um, I'm wondering whether he speaks for the government. This is a dispute between Labour and government. The NLC boss is supposed to comport himself and play his role as an independent arbiter. And if you're an independent arbiter and you are always taking issues against one party in a dispute and not seeing anything wrong with the other party, then you have no proper appreciation of your role as an independent arbiter. And unfortunately, this is how it has been all this while. Anytime there is a dispute between labor and government, the NLC that is supposed to play its role as a referee takes to one side to support the position of government you know, against labor all the time. And that's how come now people are fed up with um, how they have played their role more as I don't know, as, as defenders of government agenda and not playing, uh, not asserting themselves as independent arbiters. People are fed up with some of these things. And so um, um, I, 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 it doesn't it doesn't well for them I, uh, in, in their quest to play their role as a commission. I think the posturing of the executive secretary um, does not help anything, any, any effort, any attempt at Bringing solution to industrial, you know, related. Mm. But if, but if you don't regard their ruling, it is it is a good thing to do on their part that they go to the court for the court which has a power. The last to... time I asked you, um, um, Umar Sanda, the last time I asked you, ever since you started your profession as a journalist interviewing people, have you ever heard the Labour Commission declaring any strike as legal before? It's never happened. And so what is this kind of attitude that when there is an agreement or conflict between two parties, you would not bring a lasting solution, but you would always seek to take fast stance. And the, the most unfortunate thing uh, is that then you, the, the head goes about making offenses that rather compound and worsen um, the situation. I mean, who would be able to respect that institution if you don't play your role as an independent editor? You are referee and you are in the middle of the game. And then you demonstrate for all the sides to know that you are with one side. What will you expect the other side to be doing against you? And so they said they've taken us to court. No problem. But I keep wondering, people are on strike because of their worsened conditions of service. And you want to use strike to compel them to go back to a child. I mean, can you compel a hungry and an angry teacher to teach? I'm asking you, is teaching done under duress or is teaching done by compulsion? Since when did we get to know that when people want to teach, they must be forced to teach? Can you force a teacher who is hungry and angry to teach? I don't know. Well, that when compelling lectures back to a lecture hall, all of a sudden, um, um, restore their conditions of service or um, improve their, their conditions of service. I don't think 
This is the solution. The solution is not about court. It's about policymakers sitting down and dialoguing and making voters and then trying to meet the demands of, of labor. That's what we are asking for. If he thinks that the court is the right place to go, we would meet them in court. And the, whatever the outcome may be, we would communicate that to our members. And our members will also decide. Do you not have consideration for, for your students? They are begging that you come back. They are even saying they are going to go on the streets to register their protests on what is currently ongoing. Does that not move you still? We have a lot of consideration for our students. Remember that last year, before the end of the year, we were going to start the strike. But then we appealed to ourselves, we spoke to members, that the students shouldn't be abandoned midstream because we are about writing the exam. And then if you go on strike, then it means the whole calendar will be jeopardized and all that. So we listened to the plea of students, we listened to the plea of parents, and then we decided that, look, let's, let's not sacrifice their interests. So the reason why we slated this strike for 10th of January was to ensure that the continuous students never came to school. So they will be home and they will be on strike. So they don't even come to waste their time. And so we've been thinking about them, and not that we are insensitive. Many of the lecturers are also parents. And so we've been thinking about them. We have their interests at heart. It's just that um, we feel pulled to the wall. And we assure them that, you see, academic calendars are designed by us. We design academic calendars ourselves. If it gets disrupted, we can redesign it. When medical doctors go on strike and human beings die, we are not able to redesign human life. We are not able to bring back human life. So they won't die. We can always be able to redesign the academic calendar to take care of whatever may have been lost. But for now, we, we appeal to all of them that it is not it is in their interest to also um, defend and support the cause that we are fighting for. Otherwise, see, there are so many of them who are nursing ambition. Immediately, I'm done with level 400. I'll go and join political party. Everybody is thinking about going to join partisan politics because. That appears to be the cheapest way of making money. And the more Sunday, if all our students are going to join party politics, who would be in the classroom to produce the nation building? Prof, are you not straying into other, 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 other waters? Let, let's stick to your strike. Now, if you continue to be on strike, the school authorities will be forced to shut down. Uh, I, don't, I know that will not be up to you, uh, but do you have any information from the school? How soon is this going to happen based on your strike that is uh, prolonging? Hello, Prof. I'm afraid we lost Professor Ransford Jampo there. He is Secretary of the University Teachers Association of Ghana, UTAC, at the campus of the University of Ghana. This eyewitness news on 97.3 uh, CTFM. The students, though, have said that they would go on a demonstration as, as concerned university students. Uh, they are planning to go on a demonstration over this issue. Now, while we are talking about strikes, let's go to the Confanochi Teaching Hospital in Kumasi. Doctors there are also planning a strike from tomorrow. Hafiz Tijani is a man on the beat. Hafiz, you're welcome to Eyewitness News. What is the problem with these doctors and uh, when do they want this problem addressed or they, 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 they begin the strike? So they call themselves Konfanochi Doctors Association, in short CADA. So uh, they have written to the Chief Executive Officer of the Konfanochi Teaching Hospital, Dr. Osu Danso and reminding him about the payment or the non-payment of 
their car maintenance allowance and also their 13th month salary. Uh, they say that they have persistently, uh, uh, they have uh, contacted. Hafiz? Apologies, we lost Hafiz Tijani as well as our correspondent in the Ashanti Regional Capital, Kumasi. This is Eyewitness News on 97.3 CTFM. We are coming to you from our studios in Adabraka, in Accra. Let's remain in Kumasi. There's a story about Swami, the runabout. And it says, a portion of the Swami runabout to the airport runabout stretch in the Ashanti Regional Capital, Kumasi, has developed a huge gully which residents fear could lead to a disaster. Although there have been persistent complaints by road users on the state of the road, residency authorities have not paid heed to their cry. Regular users of the road say although there have been several visits by authorities to inspect the bridge, the state of the road is worsening. And that's a story that we're just bringing you tonight to draw attention to the uh, authorities for the Urban Roads Department and indeed the Ministry of Roads and Highways as well as the authorities of the Kumasi Metropolitan Assembly and the Ashanti Regional uh, Ministry or the Ashanti Regional Coordinating Council. This is Eyewitness News. When we come back, Nettele Nete brings you the latest in the world of business and then we have Point Blank. Don't go away. Eyewitness News. Be there as it happens. Get the details. Every significant financial transaction, every market movement, and all the policies that affect your business. City Business News. Be informed. Time now for City Business News on Eyewitness News, brought to you by Vodafone and powered by citybusinessnews.com. My name is Nettele Nete. Let's settle for the details. The Monetary Policy Committee of the Bank of Ghana has maintained the policy rate at 14.5%. This is the second time the central bank has maintained the rate after increasing it by 100 basis points in November last year. The rate, which is keen which is of keen interest to businesses, does not only signal the rate at which the central bank will lend to commercial banks, it also subsequently influences average lending rates on loans to individuals and businesses. In a statement issued by the central bank, Governor Dr. Ernest Addison attributed the decision to maintain the key rate mainly to heightened underlying inflation pressures. It further noted that the dynamics associated with the November 2021 policy rate hike are yet to be fully transmitted and thus it expects the decisive implementation of the fiscal correction measures, especially the 20% cut in expenditure, to help moderate the upside risk to inflation outlook. Fuel prices at the pumps are expected to go up effective tomorrow as the temporary removal of the price stabilization and recovery levies, PSRL by the NPA comes to an end today. The PSRL is 16 pesos per liter on petrol, 14 pesos per liter on diesel, and 14 pesos per kilogram on LPG. The levy was first removed on the 1st of November 2021 for two months to cushion consumers from the impact of the increase in fuel prices on the world market. It was later extended to the end of January 2022. Head of pricing at the NPA, Abbas Ibrahim Tasunti, has been speaking on the development. Stabilization and recovery levy, as you are aware, um, it was removed for a two-month period from the 1st of November 2021 to the 31st of December 2021. Um, a further extension of this removal was done for the month of January, and uh, we communicated this to the industry that it will, be, it will last for another one month, which ends on 31st January 2022. So as we speak, the levies on petrol, diesel, and LPG have been off for three months. 
which expires today, 31st. Um, so per our letter, it is to be restored effective 1st February 2022. Head of Pricing of the National Petroleum Authority, NPA, Abbas Ibrahim Tasunti. The Institute of Economic Affairs, IEA, is calling for a reform in the current inflation targeting framework operated by the Bank of Ghana. According to the Director of Research at the Institute, Dr. John Kwache, the current measure predominantly focuses on demand-side factors, while the major drivers of domestic inflation are supply-sided. Dr. Kwache believes this is largely responsible for the failure of inflation targeting in achieving its goal of low and stable prices and interest rates since its adoption by the Bank of Ghana in 2007 and hence needs a change. Because of all these deficiencies, the IMF initially expressed reservations about the adoption of inflation targeting by Bank of Ghana. Indeed, the IMF chose to classify Ghana's IT initially as IT light. In other words, not a fully-fledged IT. However, with the passage of time, somehow the IMF came around to endorse reluctantly a Bank of Ghana's IT, and we have continued to operate it to the present. Now, it is important to point out that even though inflation targeting does not control money supply directly, like monetary targeting, it is also a demand management framework. In other words, it is based on the theory that inflation is predominantly a demand phenomena. The theory that inflation is a demand phenomena, however, may be more applicable to advanced economies that do not face significant supply constraints. In those economies, controlling demand may be enough to control inflation. Now, in developing economies, however, supply constraints may be principal originators of inflation, while the de demand may play largely a propagatory role. Therefore, apart from the inherent short shortcomings of IT, the framework is further inhibited in a supply-constrained developing economy like Ghana's. Dr. John Kwachi is the Director of Research at the Institute of Economic Affairs. The Ghana Commodity Exchanges has targeted to trade 5,000 metric tons of cashew this year alone under the reserve auction trading system. The exchange piloted a trading of cashew last year called the Reserve Auction Trading System. According to the exchange, thanks to this system, 1,000 metric tons of cashew was traded through its platform last year. Ghana currently produces around 85,000 metric tons of raw cashew nuts each year, which accounts for about 1% of the world's total production. Chief Operations Officer of the Exchange, Robert Ohu, tells City Business News the projection is feasible considering measures already in place. In 2021, for example, we piloted the trading of cashew um, through what we call the reserve auction trading system, which is different from the spot trading that we have on the exchange. What is, is, is a system whereby you have a seller bringing in their cashew to be traded on their behalf for them by the exchange and the exchange lines up and puts together the buyers who bid just like you do in a car auction for the commodity and then one is traded they go for the commodity and settle or pay for the commodities that they had um, we managed to do a thousand and fifty metric tons of cashew and that was really good considering that it was at the end of the season and also um, it was new to the market 
um, fast track into 2022 one of the major things that we want to do is to actually do more auction trades on cashew we intend to scale up the volume because we believe that cashew has the potential of you know making um, some good income for the farmers who produce um, those cashew nuts Chief Operations Officer for the Ghana Commodity Exchange, Robert Dewona O. The Peasants Farmers Association of Ghana is urging the government to pay debts owed fertilizer companies in the country to ensure availability of the product throughout the year. There was a major shortage of the product on the market last year, which saw a rise in the price of the commodity. This led to a spike in the price of food items on the market. Head of Programs and Policy for the Peasants Farmers Association, Charles Nyaba, stressed that to end the trend, Government must do all it can to secure fertilizers for farmers at competitive prices. If you look at the budget allocation to the agriculture sector, it has increased by about 30% to the planting for food and jobs. Now, pasteurizer in the world market has increased astronomically. 2019, 50 kg of NPK was around 121-130 Ghana cities. 2020, it increased to 200-230. Today, when you go to the markets, NPK is selling between 270 to 400 Ghana cities, depending on the company. So when the season starts, there's a possibility that these prices will even get so what we expect government to do is to quickly pay money owning to fertilizer companies so that these companies can quickly scout the well market to see where they can get fertilizer and stock it whilst we wait for the season to start. China have already indicated that this year they are not going to allow fertilizer to go out of China because they have underproduction so they want to attend to their own farmers first. So we need to actually position ourselves well. If not, what happened in 2021 is likely to be worse in 2022. The reason why there are increases in almost all commodities, agriculture commodities in the market, is because we couldn't get fertilizer in, in the right quantities. So today when you go a maize, 50 kg of maize is ranging between 130 Ghana cities to 150 Ghana cities. The same thing that last year you could have gotten it around 80 Ghana cities. Head of Programs and Policy for the Peasant Farmers Association, Charles Nyakba. And that'll be all for City Business News on Eyewitness News. It was brought to you by Vodafone, Together We Can, and powered by your most comprehensive business news website, citybusinessnews.com. My name is Nettilinete. Up next is Point Blank. Eyewitness News. Be there as it happens.
continue with the corruption fight and I intend citing some examples to know what the government has been doing so far. Firstly, this administration is committed to ridding our nation of corruption as evidenced by the passage of the RTA, Right to Information Act, which gives substance to Article 21, Clause 1, F as a fundamental right guaranteed by the 92 Constitution. With the support of the President, the Minister of Information is training information officers in the various ministries, departments, and agencies of government to support the implementation of the law. The Witness Protection Act 2018, Act 975, which was passed, has set up a witness protection agency. This to clothe witnesses in the prosecution of cases, most especially corruption cases, in mind. With the passage of the Criminal Offenses Amendment Act 2020, Act 1034, which amends Section 239 of the Criminal Offenses Act, of the Criminal Offense Act, this amendment changes the status of corruption from a misdemeanor to a felony. This means that anyone who engages corruption, if he's tried, convicted, and sentenced, he receives a minimum of 12 years and a maximum of 25 years per the new law. The government intensifying the reforms has passed other legislations, such as the Revenue Administration Amendment Act. You are listening there to Deputy Attorney General Alfred Tuayebua. He was speaking at a function, a roundtable discussion that is organized on the theme redesigning new strategies for the country's approach to the fight against the canker of corruption. There were three speakers at that forum today. We are seeking to find solution to Ghana's corruption problem. And this is coming on the back of the CPI, the Corruption Perception Index, which doesn't put Ghana in any favorable corner at all. Senyo Hosi is the chief executive of the Chamber of Bulk Oil Distributors. But for purposes of this discussion, He's a lead member of the One Ghana Movement, a group that seeks to find justice and good governance for the country. It last week held a forum on the 1992 Constitution. Senor Hosi is part of the uh, speakers and he joins us on the line. Mr. Hosi, you're welcome to uh, Point Blank on Eyewitness News. Uh, tell us why you believe that there was even the need to have a forum like this to discuss corruption. Uh, well, good evening, uh, Umaru, and good evening to your listeners. Uh, Umaru, the issue of um, corruption actually is now tied to the sustainability of our own democracy. The biggest threat to our democracy is, is, um, is, is corruption. Any loss in faith in the promises that its constitution has delivered to the people tied to corruption will be a major reason why the constitution itself may find it, it's, it, it itself wanted and possibly die in the near future. Um, you see all the coups that are happening around. One of the things that amazes me with every one of them is that we find the same reasons that were argued in the 60s as the same reasons for the Jews today. 
And what's scary amongst all is that we still find a lot of people getting on the streets, especially the youth, jubilating. And corruption is a major feature. It is important to address corruption. It does not just rob us of livelihoods. It actually dissipates any hope for transforming the kind of economy that we currently have. And my opinion is really tied to the type of democracy that we have to be signed up for. All right. Is it is it that bad? Is, and why should we be raising that conversation now? You're bothered about uh, the people who are observing the happenings. And is it the case that our picture is that bad that is worth discussing now? Um, Umaru, I'll tell you, let me share some data from the Afrobarometer. The Afrobarometer suggests that as a country, our perception is that all the three arms of government, 80% of people think that all three arms of government, including the judiciary, is either corrupt, totally corrupt, or partly corrupt. How do you really see the future of the youth who are today 70% underemployed or unemployed panning out? How do you expect them to react to it? It is at the core of the sustainability of our democracy. It's a matter of national security. And for all lovers of democracy, all lovers of constitutionalism, it is important we deal with this matter head on. Look at all the elections that we have had. Every government has come practically on the back of corruption, but finds itself guilty of corruption. So what then is the problem? It is the structure of our democracy. The Constitution, as is structured today, depends on the integrity of good men. We don't seem to have a structure that sustains the goodness of man in our country. So we need to take a cue from what Obama said. We do not need strong men. We actually need strong institutions. But what institutions will you have when all the arms of government are insecure? Parliament depends on the executive for appointments into ministries. The judiciary depends on the executive for appointments into the judicial seats. Everybody wants to catch the eye of one man called the president. How is the president and the politician funded and brought into office? We need to take donations from all kinds of people who take 10 times back that which they donate. How is that going to come? How do you expect, play? How do you expect the hospitals that you need to really happen as, 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 as you see? Yes, so we have our politicians traveling, like you see the speaker there did recently. Our president and vice president always do. Um, nothing is going to change because we are ripping this country through corruption of the resources that we need for our development and the transformation of the lives of our people. It feeds back into our constitution. If everybody has to catch the eye of a president and this man becomes so powerful, it means this man should be able to do everything. Every party is expecting his president to do all kinds of things, ship monies in bags from the presidency. Every party expects that. What on earth do you think the president will do? What on earth do you expect a parliamentarian to do? His salary is 2,500 cities. If he finished paying and spending all these monies, is he able to sustain the lives that you see? Look at the lives of, of our, our politicians. Does it look like it's a life that is funded from the salaries that we pay them? Absolutely not. They have to do that because it is the only mechanism for survival. When a politician is out of office today, he is destitute. I repeat, he is practically destitute. Nobody wants to touch that politician. Nobody wants to appoint him onto a board. No one wants to give him a job because of the risk of victimization from the general executive. And that again happens because the executive is too 
powerful. So if we really want to deal with constitution, I've recommended seven Ds that we need to consider in the transformation or the revision of our constitution. One, definitely we have to deliberately work on, on the separation of the powers of, 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 uh, of the three arms of government. We need to depoliticize most of our institutions. Look at the EC, look at the NCC, look at the, 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 uh, uh, the Attorney General. The Attorney General will not find it difficult to prosecute his own people because he is appointed by the president. He works at the pleasure of a given party. Even our parliamentarians don't even have the liberty to even think for themselves. They have to do what the party directs them, even though they are there to represent us, the people. If you are in doubt, ask them to go and do the e-levy by secret voting, and you will see whether the majority will approve of it. It won't happen. So we need to change the construct of our democracy to allow systems that can strengthen our institutions and really bring all these laws that the Deputy Attorney General today mentioned into proper fusion. The fundamental problem is there is no will to deal with the matter. And there's no will because there's so much politicization of our institutions and the, and the centralization of power in a politician who also has so many people to please, not on merit. That would uh, require a lot of or a big constitutional shakeup. We, we saw an attempt to shake or amend the constitution over a decade ago. Nothing has come out of that. This is your request may be genuine but it may take forever to be to materialize if we should go by what happened in the constitutional review process in the interim what can be done um, um i disagree with you uh um Umaru. one we spent about six million dollars or so to rerun a, a, a constitutional review process i have proposed that we actually have built a consensual government gov governance system or demo democracy one that, uh, that 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 will create a situation where um, every every politician's economic survival outside of politics is, is not is not is not at risk. There are seven key things that we ask to do, and we can things that we can do now. One, different the separation of powers of the three arms of government. It just takes a referendum for us to get that done. We should want to re relook what has been done by the uh, by what Professor Fiadu's committee and have this thing passed, and it's been recommended in there. We need to make sure we have a judiciary that is not only dependent on the president to appoint. It should be able to have a system which has needs parliament passing some protests, meaning that the opposition will also have faith in the judiciary. So you know how one president is starting to just pack the Supreme Court or pack the High Court as, as it wishes and, and, and does that to really pay back some party favors. If everybody does that, can you imagine what the judiciary will be like? No wonder the judiciary itself, 80% of the people think it's corrupt. The next thing we need to look at is the, the depoliticization of our governance and democratic institutions. Our democratic institutions, like the EC, it takes up one president to just appoint the person. If we needed to test of parliament to approve of that, can you imagine the kind of rigorous process we embark on, making sure we have fair arbiters of our, of our, of our democracy, we will have the story of Charlotte say where there was very poor um, consultation made. We will have the same story that has led to us having a dementia with very poor consultation made. Like I said, I started to think what will happen in this country when NBC assumes office with a dementia in office. What happened to Charlotte say when we could actually all feel the power of politics trying to push her out, even though she had some security of tenor? The same thing will happen. Are we building a democracy? 
Another thing we have to look at is the depoliticization of our, our security services. Today, the honest fact of it, Umaru, is that our police service, our military service, people won't say it, but this is the truth. There's a silent NBC and silent MPP faction. Every politician will be touting the fact that he got his people in there. When you are getting your people in there, are you putting people there on merit? Are people now going there because they are associated with a given political party? Whose allegiance would they have? The allegiance of the state or the allegiance of their parties? That is a major risk, and we have to depoliticize our security services. Okay. And it can be done only through the Constitution. I'll just wrap up two, two, two more things here, three mm -hmm. more things here. Mm -hmm. We need to depoliticize our accountability institutions. Our Attorney General cannot be at the behest of the presidency. When his office itself is, 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 is found to be corrupt, who is going to pursue him? It is not going to happen. Our strategy, we can't have just the president appointed. We need a consensual government where parliament and two-thirds of it and civil society participate in it. We can do that now if we want to. And one of the key things that we have to consider is democracy funding. If we don't fund our democracy, corruption will continue to fund it. Today, corruption is the currency for our democracy. It is what really gets the wheels of democracy moving in this country under the current constitution. So there are a number of things that we have to do together, and we can do them now. I think the last bit that I may have missed is the state-owned enterprises and then the MMBCs, where we need our elections and also need to be politicized these institutions. For you to become an, an MD of DMPC, you don't need to be a party folk. We should have, we should have institutional representation on our state-owned enterprises. So that when, Omar, you go into office today as an MBC or MPP person, when you come out next time and you're, you're in opposition, you're not worried that anybody's coming after your business. You're not worried that you'll not be able to get that contract because of your party, party coloration. But you know that on merit, you can earn access to the services of the state. And that needs depolitization, which can happen now. We don't need more than six months to have this delivered. Very well. Thank you so much. Uh, that's Senor Hosi. He's uh, CEO of the Chamber of Bulk Oil Distributors and he's also uh, the leader of the One Ghana Movement, uh, Think Tango Pressure Group. Let's speak on the other line too. Um, Edem Senanu, he's a, with Citizen Movement Against Corruption. They were also at the forum today. Edem, you're welcome to Eyewitness News. Alpha Senor, the problem is in the Constitution. Fix the Constitution and all things shall be given unto you. And he believes this can be done in six months. I was worried, though, that a Constitution that we reviewed over a decade ago, that review we still have not seen materialized. Would it be easy to just wish the Constitution recommended or wish the recommended Constitution into being? Well, it will not be easy, but... Uh, Forgive I me, I meant to say it. amended, not recommended. Amended, yes. yes don't, yeah, I understood what you meant. Yeah, I mean, my number one issue was also the Constitution. Looking at what is happening in our sub-region, in Mali, and what have you, Burkina Faso, uh, gradually you can see that there's a risk when we don't do things in a timely manner. And honestly speaking, the excessive, extensive executive powers of appointment from the Supreme Court to the Chief Justice to the Governor Bank of Ghana, uh, to your Auditor General, uh, to what are the ministers, deputy ministers, boards, uh, what have you. It influences all the other arms of government to the point where the accountability we expect, especially if you take parliament, uh, you lose that capacity for the checks and balances. So my number one issue is also the constitution. And six months may be a little too hopeful and ambitious, 
But even if it took us two years to get this done and done right, I think we better start having that discussion now because there are too many young people who are disillusioned about what is going on. And we are clear in our mind that the one thing that will allow meritocracy and competency um, and independent institutions to be able to play their mandate without having to feel, you know, uh, as it were, influenced by the executive would be to make sure that the Constitution gets the reform it requires. So number one issue, I also agree with Senor, that it is the constitutional amendments that must be done. Okay, but we have institutions, don't we? So we have the Shrad, we have the Auditor General's Department, Parliament, and we are hoping that this hung parliament becomes the parliament we've always been hoping for. And all of these institutions, even the Attorney General's Department, there's a, there's a view that, well, there are persons there who are not politically appointed. The, attorney, the Minister for Justice and the Attorney General is a political appointee, but the department itself is not necessarily political. Do these institutions that I've just listed, Shraj and so on, potent hope for us, or you believe they are all just political tools? No, I mean, it's not that they don't uh, provide some hope, but you see, when you have a very strong executive, what it means is that the other arms of government that could normally, in a democracy, um, give strong checks, that doesn't happen. And, and so what it is is that people get disillusioned because if you have a situation where one party has the control of, let's say, the judiciary, um, the high courts, the Supreme Court judges, it means at the end of the day, your whatever case you are taking, people then say that Look, this thing is not going to go anywhere. So the institutions may still have independent, objective-minded, competent professionals, uh, but the optics, like we say, is not good. And not just that, but we, we also know that in some of the instances, they do get influenced. So we are saying it is about time we make sure that the independence is guarded with whatever we have. Let's see how we can protect and promote that independence. Let's make sure that the situation we have where um, you are having people from parliament interested in getting ministerial positions and therefore when it comes to speaking up against a government policy that they know is not good enough or could be refined. They may not speak up because you don't want to be seen as uh, the black sheep amongst the rest. I mean, we want to make it easier for everyone to do what is professionally right, what is ethically sound, and what will move the nation forward. I see. Now, on the issue of the corruption perception index, we are told that we are not looking any good. What could be causing that and how can we fix it? Well, I mean, the Corruption Perception Index, actually, in my view, is a true reflection of what is going on. It, at the moment, shows that we have stagnated. Stagnation means that we've not done enough work uh, to bring a change where it matters most is that those who are assessing it can say that, uh, objectively, we have felt a difference. I think that um, we should have had a situation where the commander-in-chief of this nation, the president, sector by sector, calls the ministers. We have the Auditor's General report that indicates the level of graft in the previous year, or even years, and give them targets. I think that the challenge we have is that at the operational level, we have not set concrete targets, established the indicators, reviewed them six months, one year, and fired people who have not delivered. So I would like to see a situation where our president calls to book his ministers, gets the Auditor General's report sector by sector. If last year, the loss in your sector was 1.2 million Ghana cities. 
I want to see a 50% reduction in that graft in the first year. And let's take another 50 reduction in the next year. It means in three years, we'll have cut this to the barest minimum. We are not targeting. Um, there's something I, I used to teach at GIMPA as an adjunct lecturer where we talk about resource-based monitoring evaluation. And we say that part of the problem of development is that people focus on outputs. So we have this legislation, it's an output. Another legislation is an output. We have put in place a special prescriber, so it's an output. And we assume that that will bring the change. But development research has shown that you need to focus on the outcomes. How has it changed the circumstances of the people? And when you begin to look at outcomes, you realize that what you are focusing on is not delivering the results. When you focus on outcomes, then you can look back and say, no, this is not really bringing a change. What can we do differently? And, we, and the only way to do that is to focus on what is the result you want to see. So I think that the president must take up this pool, uh, confront it head on, fix targets together with whichever ministers. And let's come back after year. Let's be ready to fire people who not bring this down. There's something we call the leaky bucket analysis we use for local economic analysis. And in my, in my head, I mean, if I look at the leakages we have in the bucket and we are saying that we still want to put money into that bucket, it doesn't make sense. You must plug all those holes before you put any amount of new money into the system. Otherwise, you are just, you know, frustrating everybody. Very well. Thank so, you. Uh, okay, you can land. You can, you, you can land. Yes. Yeah, so those are a few of my thoughts that let's be more serious about targeting what we want to see. Let's pick the Auditor General's report. It's a good place to start. Let's target 50% reduction in the graph of the year 2021. And let's have a system. Let's digitize our capacity to review what the ministers are doing so everybody can see whether they are performing or not. And that will be a way to bring change in the CPI results by 2023. Very well. Thank you so much uh, for speaking to us. And thank you for having me. That's Adam Senanu. He's with the Citizen Movement Against Corruption. My name is Umaru Sandamado. Production tonight by Sixtus Donolo, Beverly London, and Zoe Abubedu Ado. The technical support from Daniel Squashi. We'll be back tomorrow at 17.30 GMT. Don't worry. City News. We speak first. Reach our hotline on 0302-976-732 and get interactive on Facebook, City 97.3 FM and Twitter at City 973.